0: Good morning again. It's great to see everyone here. What a lively morning. Now by all rights, this morning's sermon should feature this familiar reading from Matthew called the Beatitudes, which we just heard. I've said multiple times that I think we are a kind of a Beatitudes kind of church, marked most notably by the stained glass windows on the east side of our nave and as this year we're marking the 30th anniversary of this beautiful space, it'd be good and joyful thing, you might say, to call out our heritage with and through the Beatitudes. But we have much of the rest of epiphany to dive into the familiar writings of Matthew 5. And this morning I found myself drawn instead to a slightly less familiar reading from 1 Corinthians, where Paul says we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now, Paul opens the reading that we just heard with a quick summary of his message. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, you'd be right to question why we're spending so much time on Christ on the cross in epiphany, when we should be focusing on the incarnation the appearance of God in Jesus in Bethlehem, or as in today's reading, on a mountain surrounded by his disciples. But this extended stay that we're having, this epiphany in 1st Corinthians, I think provides a kind of balance to the gospel. Maybe a way to ground it in real life, the life that was experienced by the Corinthians. A life that spoke both to the Corinthians and that speaks to us today. See, I think what Paul shows in this reading is a Christian way to deal with division. Now division in our church and division in the world, all sorts of division. And it's kind of almost become cliche to talk about divisions and the divides in our world. So what can we learn from the Apostle Paul? Now Paul calls the crucifixion, as you heard me say a minute ago, is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You see, the Jews expected the Messiah to arrive in a great glory, not crucified on a cross, just outside of Jerusalem. The Gentiles, relying upon their minds and on wisdom, found the idea of all-powerful God crucified to be utterly foolish. It just didn't make sense. Now both the Jews and Gentiles failed to recognize God's triumph in the cross. Both were blinded by their idea of how God would be versus how God actually is. Now the city of Corinth was a community of ex-slaves and had its origins in poverty and exile. But because of its great location, connecting the Ionian and Aegean seas, it had become a thriving community, now overrun with the nouveau riche, masters of the universe, who were used to getting their way. Think of it like the, maybe the Bentonville of its day, used to being control. Now I don't put shame there, i lived there for eight years, but just saying. <laughs> Paul's church was divided and tearing itself apart from within. You may recall last week's strange Corinthian reading, which Rudy did so well, when Paul seems confused about who he may have baptized or not. He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you, well, except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. And then he adds in parentheses, well, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus beyond that I don't think I baptized anyone else so I love that little meandering that Paul does in that reading in Corinthians it's it's really Paul at his most real most human and what Paul's doing is arguing for unity for his divided church he's been told about he's he's been told about the battle lines that have been drawn he even plays them back to me. He says, what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Everybody thinks they know best, and it's tearing the church apart. So he argues for unity through the saving power of God on the cross, that the Corinthians, thinking they know how God works, are no better than the Jews or Gentiles that they are stumbling blocks and utter foolishness. See, in his call for unity, I think Paul does something quite clever. He introduces a third way. See, he didn't even address the divides that are tearing the church apart because there's no need to stoop to that level of discourse. Instead, he asked them to look at a third thing. It's not a compromise, but a more unifying force. He asks him to look at the saving power of God. This third way brings to mind one of our favorite writers, Cynthia Bourgeau, whose law of three urges us to always look for that unifying idea, that higher thought, that third way. She says, we shift the focus away from trying to eliminate the opposition toward working toward a more spacious solution. And it's what Paul is doing with the Corinthians. He's not addressing the division head on, and I imagine that's pretty frustrating for those in Corinth. There were likely several meetings after the meeting in the church parking lot for the supporters of Apollos, or Cephas, or even Paul. Paul's third way, pointing to the unifying power of God and the cross, is meant to lift the Corinthians to a new level. He lands it with them by asking them to reflect on their own calling. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He's speaking to the people of Corinth. And in his way, in his third way, Paul reframes the argument and destroys the apparent binary. This idea of I belong to this or I belong to that. And I'm right and you're wrong. And as foolish as it may seem, Christ on a cross crucified as the ultimate sign of God's power. This third way made me wonder about our own divisions, our seemingly impenetrable divides that mark so much of our mental imaginations these days. So if you wouldn't mind I'd like to go down a little rabbit hole with you. Um, I'm a big fan of advertising. I have been pretty much all my life memorizing jingles as a kid that I still remember today and if you want to ask me I'm happy to recite some to you. It's probably part of the reason I spent much of my life working in advertising. I never created anything like the jingles of my childhood, but I enjoyed a very good life. And as we approach the holiest of holy advertising days, the Super Bowl, (laughs) that's true, I've been more and more aware of the advertising around us. And one campaign that sticks out is the slickly produced pro-Jesus effort It's called He Gets Us. Developed and funded by a mysterious group of big money donors, the campaign plans to spend a couple of billion dollars over the coming years and promises a couple of big Super Bowl ads the next couple of weeks. Now, if you've not seen them, they generally open on an unidentified person or group, a lonely person, a family of refugees, a rebellious gang, an anxiety-ridden woman, and carefully win their way to the big reveal. Jesus was lonely, a refugee, a gang leader. Jesus was anxious. And it ends with the placard, he gets us. Now I'm, not, I'm still not sure what I think about the campaign, but I have to admit it has kept me thinking about it, which is part of the point, I guess. Now the stated aim for the creators of the campaign is And I have to add, this is in the regrettable language of marketing, it is to increase the relevancy of Jesus among Americans. It goes on to reveal that the research found that generally positive feelings toward Jesus but not toward Christianity. One reviewer even titled it, reintroducing Jesus to the Americans. Kind of like taste Jesus again for the first time. Or this isn't your father's Jesus. As for cornflakes and Oldsmobile back in the day. Or any of the other countless efforts to reintroduce a familiar but but slightly worn out brand. I mean, it's just boggles that this is about Jesus, but I'm just not sure what I think about it. But apparently it's proven effective. The Rebel Spot has over 25 million views on YouTube. And the creators point out that it's working in test markets. And they plan on spending a boatload of money behind it, as I mentioned. So I guess it's working, whatever that means. Maybe our nation's salvationometer is inching up for the first time in a while. Our belief in Jesus, otherwise known as his Q-score, is skyrocketing. Maybe now he's passed Oprah and the Kardashians. But the ads are powerful. And they introduce a human Jesus who has no hold on either side of the divisions, Of society's so-called culture wars. A war that has weaponized Jesus way too much these past years. He is a refugee. He is compassionate. He's been through tough times just like you, just like me. He gets it. He gets us. Now it made me wonder if this isn't an attempt at a third way like the one Paul used with the Christians of Corinth. By elevating Jesus' human side, his empathy and solidarity with all of us, no matter who we are, where we come from, or whom we hang around with, does it indeed make our petty divisions dissolve just a little bit? And it does a good job of incarnating Jesus into the 21st century challenges that we face every day. Loneliness, anxiety, family strife. Is this, as Cynthia Bourgeot might put it, an opportunity to go forward into that new arising that honors all sides and brings them into a new, bigger relationship? And just as importantly, is it making any difference? Now, I generally find any human attempt at doing what God does best, including my own attempts, to be an exercise of futility. Who are we to think that we can even come close? but I wanted to do a little research on it, so I ventured into the cesspool of human discourse, otherwise known as Twitter, and found the campaign's response predictably divided. One biblical literalist denounced the neck tattoos and leather jacket of one of the spot's lead rebels, claiming no scriptural evidence for Jesus wearing a leather jacket or leading a bunch of urban toughs. This reviewer has apparently never heard of a thing called metaphor. But he helpfully provides a link to donate to support his cause. Another pro-LGBT reference to the campaign, that Jesus loves the gays, was met with lots of Bible references and denunciations of imminent hellfire and brimstone. Each tweet was followed by its own litany of hateful responses, pro and con, all in the name of Jesus. So I quickly aborted my adventure in the Twitterverse. I felt like I could use a shower afterwards. <laughs> what struck me, though, about the dialogue around the campaign with, was that a lot of people were pretending to know what God's doing or thinking. Pretending to know what God's up to. And that is a fool's errand. It brings to mind Paul's reminder to the Corinthians when he says, but we proclaim Christ crucified, A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Like the Jews and the Gentiles, like the divided Corinthians, we can become so sure of what God's up to that we don't see it when He's right in front of us doing His work. You maybe think, what if these these divisions that we talk about so much, what if those are the point? What if in those divisions, God is most at work? God is breaking them down, breaking us down, healing them, healing us. Instead of divisions, maybe they're like cracks. Places where a new reality is starting to emerge. Slowly, probably too slowly. And maybe not now, maybe not even in our lifetimes, but eventually, God is at work in this. We as Christians, I believe, are called to believe in that new reality. That new thing, that God thing. No matter how small and insignificant it may seem right now, we count on it, we believe in it to grow. The divides that rule the church in Corinth, you know, the go Cephas, go Apollos. They've kind of withered away, haven't they? Might ours also, as they turn into the new thing, the third thing, the new reality. See, we are called to hope and to believe. God is at work, even in the most foolish, most unimaginable places. You see, it's not just that he gets us, but that we get him. Amen. Amen.